0: Chapter Four of Elsie Venner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dion Johns, Salt Lake City, Utah. Elsie Venner by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Chapter Four. The moth flies into the candle. The invitation which Mister Bernard Langdon had accepted came from the board of trustees of the Apollinean Female Institute—a school for the education of young ladies situated in the flourishing town of Rockland. This was an establishment on a considerable scale in which a hundred scholars or thereabouts were taught the ordinary English branches—several of the modern languages—something of latin if desired with a little natural philosophy metaphysics and rhetoric to finish off with in the last year and music at any time when they could pay for it at the close of their career in the institute they were submitted to a grand public examination and received diplomas tied in blue ribbons which proclaimed them with a great flourish of capitals to be graduates of the apollinean female institute rockland was a town of no inconsiderable pretensions it was ennobled by lying at the foot of a mountain called by the working folks of the place the mountain which sufficiently showed that it was the principal highland of the district in which it was situated it lay to the south of this and basked in the sunshine as italy stretches herself before the alps to pass from the town of tamarick on the north of the mountain to rockland on the south was like crossing from Corre to chiavena there is nothing gives glory and grandeur and romance and mystery to a place like the impending presence of a high mountain our beautiful northampton with its fair meadows and noble stream is lovely enough but owes its surpassing attraction to those twin summits which brood over it like living presences looking down into its streets as if they were its tutelary divinities dressing and undressing their green shrines robing themselves in jubilant sunshine or in sorrowing clouds and doing penance in the snowy shroud of winter as if they had living hearts under their rocky ribs and changed their mood like the children of the soil at their feet who grow up under their almost parental smiles and frowns happy is the child whose first dreams of heaven are blended with the evening glories of mount holyoke when the sun is firing its tree-tops and gilding the white walls that mark its one human dwelling if the other and the wilder of the two summits has a scowl of terror in its overhanging brows yet is it a pleasing fear To look upon its savage solitudes through the barred nursery windows in the heart of the sweet companionable village and how the mountains love their children the sea is of a facile virtue and will run to kiss the first comer in any port he visits but the chaste mountains sit apart and show their faces only in the midst of their own families the mountain which kept watch to the north of rockland lay waste and almost inviolate through much of its domain the catamount still glared from the branches of its old hemlocks on the lesser beasts that strayed beneath him it was not long since a wolf had wandered down famished in the winter's dearth and left a few bones and some tufts of wool of what had been a lamb in the morning nay there were broad-footed tracks in the snow only two years previously which could not be mistaken the black bear alone could have set that plantigrade seal and little children must come home early from school and play for he is an indiscriminate feeder when he is hungry and a little child would not come amiss when other game was wanting but these occasional visitors may have been mere wanderers which straying along in the woods by day and perhaps stalking through the streets of still villages by night had worked their way along down from the ragged mountain spurs of higher latitudes the one feature of the mountain that shed the brownest horror on its woods was the existence of the terrible region known as rattlesnake ledge and still tenanted by those damnable reptiles which distil a fiercer venom under our cold northern sky than the cobra himself in the land of tropical spices and poisons from the earliest settlement of the place this fact had been next to the indians the reigning nightmare of the inhabitants it was easy enough after a time to drive away the savages for a screeching indian dival as our fathers called him could not crawl into the crack of a rock to escape from his pursuers but the venomous population of rattlesnake ledge had a gibraltar for their fortress that might have defied the siege train dragged to the walls of sebastopol in its deep embrasures and its impregnable easements they reared their families they met in love or wrath they twined together in family knots they hissed defiance in hostile clans they fed slept hibernated and in due time died in peace many a foray had the townspeople made and many a stuffed skin was shown as a trophy nay there were families where the children's first toy was made from the warning appendage that once vibrated to the wrath of one of these cruel serpents sometimes one of them coaxed out by a warm sun would writhe himself down the hillside into the roads up the walks that led to houses worse than this into the long grass where the barefooted mowers would soon pass with their swinging scythes more rarely into houses and on one memorable occasion early in the last century into the meeting-house where he took a position on the pulpit stairs as is narrated in the account of some remarkable providences etc where it is suggested that a strong tendency of the rev didymus bean the minister at that time towards the arminian heresy may have had something to do with it and that the serpent supposed to have been killed on the pulpit stairs was a false show of the demon's contrivance he having come in To listen to a discourse which was a sweet savor in his nostrils and of course not being capable of being killed himself others said however that though there was good reason to think it was a demon yet he did come with intent to bite the heel of that faithful servant etc one gilson is said to have died of the bite of a rattlesnake in this town early in the present century after this there was a great snake-hunt in which very many of these venomous beasts were killed one in particular said to have been as big round as a stout man's arm and to have had no less than forty joints to his rattle indicating according to some that he had lived forty years but if we might put any faith in the indian tradition that he had killed forty human beings an idle fancy, clearly. This hunt, however, had no permanent effect in keeping down the serpent population. Viviparous creatures are a kind of specie paying lot, but oviparous ones only give their notes, as it were, for a future brood, an egg being, so to speak, a promise to pay a young one by-and-by, if nothing happen." now the domestic habits of the rattlesnake are not studied very closely for obvious reasons but it is no doubt to all intents and purposes oviparous consequently it has large families and it is not easy to kill out in the year eighteen forty something a melancholy proof was afforded to the inhabitants of rockland that the brood which infested the mountain was not extirpated a very interesting young married woman detained at home at the time by the state of her health was bitten in the entry of her own house by a rattlesnake which had found its way down from the mountain owing to the almost instant employment of powerful remedies the bite did not prove immediately fatal but she died within a few months of the time when she was bitten all this seemed to throw a lurid kind of shadow over the mountain yet as many years passed without any accident people grew comparatively careless and it might rather be said to add a fearful kind of interest to the romantic hillside that the banded reptiles which had been the terror of the red men for nobody knows how many thousand years were there still with the same poison-bags and spring teeth at the white men's service if they meddled with them the other natural features of rockland were such as many of our pleasant country towns can boast of a brook came tumbling down the mountain-side and skirted the most thickly settled portion of the village in the parts of its course where it ran through the woods the water looked almost as brown as coffee flowing from its urn to say like smoky quartz would perhaps give a better idea but in the open plain it sparkled over the pebbles white as a queen's diamonds there were huckleberry pastures on the lower flanks of the mountain with plenty of the sweet-scented mayberry mingled with the other bushes in other fields grew great store of high bush blackberries along the roadside were bayberry bushes hung all over with bright red coral pendants in autumn and far into the winter then there were swamps set thick with dingy alders where the three-leaved arum and the skunk's cabbage grew broad and succulent shelving down into black boggy pools here and there at the edge of which the green frog stupidest of his tribe sat waiting to be victimized by boy or snapping turtle long after the shy and agile leopard frog had taken the six-foot spring that plumped him into the middle of the pool and on the neighbouring banks the maidenhair spread its flat disk of embroidered fronds on the wire-like stem that glistened polished and brown as the darkest tortoise-shell and pale violets cheated by the cold skies of their hues and perfume sunned themselves like white-cheeked invalids over these rose the old forest trees the maple scarred with the wounds which had drained away its sweet life-blood the beech, its smooth gray bark mottled so as to look like the body of one of those great snakes of old that used to frighten armies always the mark of lovers knives as in the days of musidora and her swain the yellow birch rough as the breast of Selenus in old marbles the wild cherry its little bitter fruit lying unheeded at its foot and soaring over all the huge, coarse-barked, splintery-limbed, dark-mantled hemlock, in the depth of whose aerial solitudes the crow brooded on her nest unscared, and the gray squirrel lived unharmed till his incisors grew to look like ram's horns. Rockland would have been but half a town without its pond. Guineapeg Pond was the name of it, but the young ladies of the Apollinian Institute were very anxious that it should be called crystalline lake it was here that the young folks used to sail in summer and skate in winter here too those queer old rum-scented good-for-nothing lazy story-telling half vagabonds who sawed a little wood or dug a few potatoes now and then under the pretense of working for their living used to go and fish through the ice for a pickerel every winter and here those three young people were drowned a few summers ago by the upsetting of a sailboat in a sudden flaw of wind there is not one of these smiling ponds which has not devoured more youths and maidens than any of those monsters the ancients used to tell such lies about but it was a pretty pond and never looked more innocent so the native bard of rockland said in his elegy than in the morning when they found sarah jane and ellen maria floating among the lily-pads the apollinean institute or institute as it was more commonly called was in the language of its prospectus a first-class educational establishment it employed a considerable corps of instructors to rough out and finish the hundred young ladies scholars it sheltered beneath its roof first mr and mrs peckham the principal and the matron of the school silas peckham was a thorough yankee born on a windy part of the coast and reared chiefly on salt fish everybody knows the type of yankee produced by this climate and diet thin as if he had been split and dried with an ashen kind of complexion like the tint of the food he is made of and about as sharp tough juiceless and biting to deal with as the other is to the taste silas peckham kept a young ladies school exactly as he would have kept a hundred head of cattle for the simple unadorned purpose of making just as much money in just as few years as could be safely done mr peckham gave very little personal attention to the department of instruction but was always busy with contracts for flour and potatoes beef and pork and other nutritive staples, the amount of which required for such an establishment was enough to frighten a quartermaster. Mrs. Peckham was from the West, raised on Indian corn and pork, which gave a fuller outline and a more humid temperament, but may perhaps be thought to render people a little coarse-fibred her specialty was to look after the feathering cackling roosting rising and general behavior of these hundred chicks an honest ignorant woman she could not have passed an examination in the youngest class so this distinguished institution was under the charge of a commissary and a housekeeper and its real business was making money by taking young girls in as boarders connected with this however was the incidental fact which the public took for the principal one, namely, the business of instruction. Mr. Peckham knew well enough that it was just as well to have good instructors as bad ones, so far as cost was concerned, and a great deal better for the reputation of his feeding establishment. He tried to get the best he could, without paying too much, and having got them, to screw all the work out of them that could possibly be extracted there was a master for the english branches with a young lady assistant there was another young lady who taught french of the and bandang style which does not exactly smack of the asphalt of the boulevards there was also a german teacher of music who sometimes helped in french of the Afang and batang style so that between the two the young ladies could hardly have been mistaken for Parisians by a committee of the French Academy. The German teacher also taught a Latin class after his fashion, bene, aben, gabout, ahead, and so forth. The master for the English branches had lately left the school for private reasons, which need not here be mentioned, but he had gone at any rate, and it was his place which had been offered to Mr. Bernard Langdon the offer came just in season as for various causes he was willing to leave the place where he had begun his new experience it was on a fine morning that mr bernard ushered in by mr peckham made his appearance in the great schoolroom of the apollinean institute a general rustle ran all round the seats when the handsome young man was introduced the principal carried him to the desk of the young lady english assistant miss darley by name and introduced him to her there was not a great deal of study done that day the young lady assistant had to point out to the new master the whole routine in which the classes were engaged when their late teacher left and which had gone on as well as it could since then master langdon had a great many questions to ask some relating to his new duties and some perhaps implying a degree of curiosity not very unnatural under the circumstances. The truth is, the general effect of the schoolroom, with its scores of young girls, all their eyes naturally centering on him with fixed or furtive glances, was enough to bewilder and confuse a young man like Master Langdon, though he was not destitute of self possession, as we have already seen. You cannot get together a hundred girls, taking them as they come, from the comfortable and affluent classes probably anywhere certainly not in new england without seeing a good deal of beauty in fact we very commonly mean by beauty the way young girls look when there is nothing to hinder their looking as nature meant them to and the great schoolroom of the apollinean institute did really make so pretty a show on the morning when master langdon entered it that he might be pardoned for asking Miss Darley more questions about his scholars than about their lessons. There were girls of all ages, little creatures, some pallid and delicate-looking, the offspring of invalid parents, much given to books, not much to mischief, commonly spoken of as particularly good children, and contrasted with another sort, girls of more vigorous organization, who were disposed to laughing and play and required a strong hand to manage them then young growing misses of every shade of saxon complexion here and there one of more southern hue blondes some of them so translucent looking that it seemed as if you could see the souls in their bodies like bubbles in glass if souls were object of sight brunettes some with rose-red colours and some with that swarthy hue which often carries with it A heavily shaded lip and which with pure outlines and outspoken reliefs gives us some of our handsomest women the women whom ornaments of plain gold adorn more than any other perus and again but only here and there one with dark hair and gray or blue eyes a celtic type perhaps but found in our native stock occasionally rarest of all a light-haired girl with dark eyes hazel brown or of the color of that mountain brook spoken of in this chapter where it ran through shadowy woodlands with these were to be seen at intervals some of maturer years full-blown flowers among the opening buds with that conscious look upon their faces which so many women wear during the period when they never meet a single man without having his monosyllable ready for him tied as they are, poor things, on the rock of expectation, each of them an Andromeda waiting for her Perseus. "'Who is that girl in ringlets, the fourth in the third row on the right?' said Master Langdon. "'Charlotte Anne Wood,' said Miss Darley, "'writes very pretty poems.' "'Oh, and the pink one, three seats from her. Looks bright. Anything in her?' "'Emma Dean, day scholar. Squire Dean's daughter. Nice girl second medal last year the master asked these two questions in a careless kind of way and did not seem to pay any too much attention to the answers and who and what is that he said sitting a little apart there that strange wild-looking girl this time he put the real question he wanted answered the other two were asked at random as masks for the third the lady teacher's face changed one would have said she was frightened or troubled she looked at the girl doubtfully as if she might hear the master's question and its answer but the girl did not look up she was winding a gold chain about her wrist and then uncoiling it as if in a kind of reverie miss darley drew close to the master and placed her hand so as to hide her lips don't look at her as if we were talking about her she whispered softly that is Elsie Venner. End of chapter four.